Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. everybody. I'm Bob Solter. On our program on the fan, we try to bring you some good information. Also, we like to have a good time during this show. Because as I said many times before, life is much too short not to do that. Hey, come on, put a smile on your face. After all, stop and think about it. It's left at six o'clock in the morning. What else are you doing? Well, over the next couple of hours, we're going to get into a number of interesting areas of discussion because we have a couple of guests who are in studio. We love when that happens. They've come back to visit us. The guests are folks who've been with us before from IGEA Brain and Spine, Dr. Arun Rajaram and Dr. Adam Lipson uh, in studio with us on our program this morning. It's nice to have both of you join us again. Good morning to you. Morning, Bob. Always great to be here. Much better weather this month. <laughs> We're finally there. Spring and summer is finally there. Remember that Remember that first morning, that January morning? Yep. When I, we sw- started I still this? swerve by that pothole every time <laughs> on the way into the Lincoln Tunnel. Ah, uh, yes. The memories. Well, the good I, old think, days. I, think, I think winter is finally gone. I, I'm at least hopeful at this point. Uh, there's so many areas where we can go in uh, discussion today you know there's a lot of talk about um, sports injuries obviously uh, in the news but I always like to do a little bit of background at the beginning of uh, these discussions for folks who are listening to us um, tell us a little bit if you would of what IGEA brain and spine is all about who wants to take that I can get started so uh, this is Adam Lipson one of the managing partners at IGEA brain spine I'm a neurosurgeon uh, been in practice 10 years in New York and New Jersey area we have uh, six offices in New Jersey, one office in Manhattan, and we're a multi-specialty group. We offer neurosurgery, orthopedic services, neurology, soon-to-be neuropsychology, uh, and we take care of really everything musculoskeletal, and I, I would call it the neuromusculoskeletal axis, axis from head to toe, doing brain surgery, spine surgery, taking care of all of the shoulder, knee, um, hip injuries uh, that come along. And we're a private practice. We're, we're really all over, all over the state and growing quite, yeah. quite significantly. Uh, you know, my focus really is on giving just the best, most personalized care for our patients and having it in a private practice model where we have attendings actually can really supervise the entire yeah. process and, and hold the patient's hand through that is, I think, something that really defines us. So. 
Arun? Mm -hmm. Yeah, we've certainly grown tremendously, uh, as Adam was saying, and the uh, New Jersey presence has certainly grown throughout the state, and uh, our Manhattan office is getting a lot busier um, in the past two months now. Even uh, I've started coming to our Manhattan office, so the orthopedic uh, division has grown a lot there as well. So we're right on 86th and Park, so any of our folks listening here in the city, when you uh, wake up uh, in the morning, you could save it on your map and come on over on Wednesday, their Wednesday nights. So uh, we're certainly growing a lot, and it's, uh, you know, it's a privilege to be able to offer everything from head to toe to our patients. So patients love the fact that they can come into one office and one group and feel like they're really being taken care of from head to toe. So um, you know, a great, great team that we have uh, put together uh, at IGEA. Now, the last time that you were here, it was, if I recall, just before you were about to head to a conference in um, the Washington, D.C. Mm -hmm. area. It was also happened to be the time when uh, cherry blossoms were coming out. Right. So you got to enjoy a little bit of that while you were there, yep. uh, too. What was the conference like? Sure, yeah. So that the name of the conference actually is the Cherry Blossom Sports Medicine Seminar, <laughs> being you know appropriately named because they do it in April every year, and it's actually now the the longest running um, privately created uh, medical sports medicine conference in the in the country, and uh, it's been going on for over thirty years now, and it's it's an impressive um, assortment of topics and speakers and. Uh, experts from all over the country and uh, some from international um, kind of perspectives on things as well. And it's broken up basically uh, section by section on the different topics. So we'll have a morning dedicated just to knee injuries, then an afternoon discussion about shoulder injuries, and then the next morning, you know, about elbow and about knee. So kind of we break, usually they end up broken down on topics for a couple hours at a time. And then there's uh, experts that give um, some lectures, and then basically there's always an interactive kind of question and answer answer session after, and then there's kind of small group discussions after. So um, it's an, it's just an amazing uh, kind of back and forth of, of information and knowledge and and um, feedback with everyone. And you just you see uh, what your colleagues are doing around the country and and around the world in many ways, and and uh, you you often see that people are people are thinking about the a lot of the same things with uh, different perspectives so it's great to kind of uh, get ideas as far as what's uh, you know what's the latest and greatest in uh, medical technology and perspectives on how to treat treat folks is that one of the ways that because I would imagine you also do a phenomenal amount of, of reading as well mm -hmm. that you kind of keep up to date with the advances the changes because in both of your special specialty areas there's changes always happening Always, absolutely, yeah. So that whole process, you know, formally is called continuing medical education. Mm -hmm. you know, every field has their own version of that, but ours are, you know, CMEs, and and you can go to meetings, you can, uh, you know, read articles, you can listen to lectures online, and, and nowadays, but but uh, you know, being at being at meetings and conferences are, are my favorite because you you're obviously interacting with your peers and you're getting to kind of discuss with everyone, uh, you know, what how do you how do you treat this particular type of injury or what do you think the best uh, method for this type of surgery is. And um, and then you're also hearing formal didactic lectures too from folks on um, you know new technologies and things like that too. So it's a great combination of uh, informative lectures, but also a great kind of peer interaction and discussion um, purposes to all grow together. All right, let's put you a little bit on the spot now. This mm -hmm. was last month. Yeah. Okay. What would you say that you actually learned, took away, perhaps got something new from? And let's take the area of the knee. 
Great question. So one of my mentors when I was in medical school uh, was the, the head team physician of the, of the Giants, who's still the Dr. Warren, the head team physician of the Giants right now. Um, one of my mentors in medical school, he gave a, a talk at this meeting. So he gave one of the lectures and it was about the, about the ACL. He gave a couple talks, but this particular topic about the ACL was talking about how the progression of ACL surgery has gone since the 70s, you know, when he first started doing a lot of those surgeries to where they are today, you know, 2018. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's so many little nuances from the the type of graft that you use for uh, an individual, the, the location and the knee to, to put it. You know, when we say you hear the word knee, you think of, okay, you think of your knee, but then the, the nuances of the inside of the knee, and, and we're talking about millimeter differences on where you put that new ligament the effect that that has on your stability and your function and your ultimate, you know, protection of your knee moving forward can make a difference. So it's evolved over the years as to where precisely inside that knee do you put it and how do you fix it. Um, so he kind of had given a nice um, perspective on how he's seen it change over over the years, and in some ways the pendulum kind of keeps swinging in different directions. To now he, uh, you know, is really making us think again. Okay. Are we putting the ACL exactly where we were all born when, uh, you know, with an ACL in the knee at this precise location? Are we putting it in that exact location or, you know, are there, are there certain ways uh, that we can make that outcome even better um, by modifying certain things in that, in that mm. surgery? Mm. All right. Now, one of the things that is happening, it seems, every day, mm-hmm. we're hearing about some injury, all right, um, and it seems like with local teams, okay, but... Basically, it's across, especially in baseball. Sure. I mean, it's it's just all kinds of injuries are happening. Um, let's get your perspective on a couple of these different things. I mean, you had sent an email out uh, yesterday about uh, a couple of different areas that you wanted to comment on. Why don't you take us through um, some of your thoughts? Uh, because, you yeah. know, some of these things folks hear about, you hear about... Um, an injury taking place, and of course the fans always immediately think, "Well, how long is the person going to be out?" Right? Okay. Or are they going to be out? You know? Sure. What's what's the, everybody wants to know what the recovery process is? Right. So most recently this week, you know, Jacob Degrom on on the Mets injured his elbow, right? And that was a big a big scare on Wednesday night, and um, you know he. Uh, Thank goodness he's, he's just uh, basically a hyperextension kind of strain injury that he's, as of now, supposed to pitch tomorrow as long as he you know does okay in warm-ups and everything. But it's, it's a little interesting background on him because of the fact that he had significant uh, elbow concerns in the past because mm-hmm. he, had, he had a Tommy John surgery. So years ago, he tore that ulnar collateral ligament, and he did have surgery to reconstruct it. Then he developed one of the uh, issues that people potentially can have after the fact is scar tissue around that ulnar nerve. So he started having a lot of tingling and everything like that down that arm and down that hand. So then the following year had another surgery to basically remove the scar tissue and give that nerve more room to breathe around Mm. the elbow. And then he made a... Go ahead, Bob, you had a question? No, go right ahead. Oh, um, then after that, he made a good recovery after that second procedure and uh, has you know has been been pitching well and then this injury happens so the first thing you worry about is oh did he tear that oh, reconstructed ulnar collateral ligament did he tear that Tommy John ligament again um, so you you really get 
you're extra, you're hypervigilant in that scenario because of his history with that elbow being injured and having issues um, several times. So that's why immediately, you know, they obviously, you know, brought him out that night and then uh, got that MRI late that night. And thankfully, nothing was torn. Um, and then, you know, that's something we can talk about later as far as, all right, you know, uh, when do you get an x-ray right away? When do you get an MRI right away? What does that all mean? Because that's a very common question that people ask us in the office. Mm-hmm. Um, but in his case, you know, thankfully his MRI was, was fine and they diagnosed him with more of a strain, which is essentially like a muscle pull. And we can talk about, you know, some of the muscles that, that usually are involved in that scenario. But that's basically best case scenario. Um, couldn't ask for a better uh, ultimate diagnosis on what his problem is. And then his time to return to play is basically when he feels good again in regards to being, we, we always say, pain-free range of motion. If you can move your elbow just like your other elbow moves and mm-hmm. it doesn't hurt, mm-hmm. that's, that's, that's what you want. Your goal is to get back to pain-free range of motion. And once you have that, then you can start pushing as far as the strengthening and the pitching and the reps. Um, so that's one of our initial most important criteria to get someone back in the game. Okay, let's go back to what the point that you raised because it's one of the things that I thought of initially was this whole idea of, okay, what determines when one gets an X-ray mm-hmm. or even whether you get an X-ray? Sure. So, you know, the X-rays, the mo- X-ray is the most uh basic imaging modality Mm -hmm. we use in musculoskeletal system, which gives us a tremendous amount of information and in many ways gives us the most important information right away. Because ultimately, I I just, in the beginning, if someone got hit or, you know, someone uh, in any sport, you know, someone rolled their ankle after after tripping, uh, you know, or being slide tackled or or whatever you have it, I want to make sure nothing broke. That's Mm -hmm. the bottom line. I want to make sure the bone didn't break. Now, this is more, you know, jokingly and things like that. People always ask me, you know, what's what's worse, a break or a fracture? And long story short, they mean exactly the same. We get that question all the time. So people say, oh, you know, thank goodness it's not fractured. It's only broke. I'm like, listen, it's still it's still broke. <laughs> I was like, it still doesn't, it still doesn't help the cause. So if it makes you feel better, fine, but it's still the same end result. Um, so for anyone out there who ever wanted to know the difference between a break and a fracture, it's the same thing. Um, so... That's the most important thing in the beginning is I just want to make sure that ankle didn't break or you didn't, you know, break a part of your knee, that kind of thing, because that automatically is a game changer because then you can't, you know, you can't walk on that thing. You may have to be, you know, potentially in a cast or potentially need surgery depending on how it broke. Mm -hmm. So when you break a bone, yes, it's going to heal, but in the beginning, it's a, it's a game changer as far as being able to use that extremity or use that joint. Because if you keep moving, the bones keep moving on the inside and they actually don't heal. That's why the x-ray is our first most important step to make sure that nothing actually broke or a piece of bone didn't get pulled off or something like that. So that's that's kind of step one. And the timing of the x-ray? That, you depending on where you are. So most professional teams, you know, when, when I was in Houston, all of our, our um, basically physician rooms in the stadiums, we had a little portable x-ray machine. So we'd basically just walk back into the locker room with the players and we would just take the picture right there. So it's, you know, it's a different, obviously a different environment. Um, so that, uh, but in general, you know, if someone comes into our office, we're going to potentially order that x-ray the same day, you know, to say, right. Hey, you know, let's make sure nothing's injured here. Um, but that's your, your kind of go to, um, imaging modality right in the beginning, just to make sure that nothing, nothing is broken mm. from that standpoint. We're going to talk more about uh, this topic and others with our guests from IGEA Brain and Spine. We'll take a pause in our discussion. 
Discussion with our guests from IGEA Brain and Spine, Drs. Adam Lipson, he is a neurosurgeon, Dr. Arun Rajaram, who is an orthopedic surgeon, both in studio with us on our program this morning. And we've been talking a little bit about um, a couple of different areas. Um, we'll get into talking more about this. One of the thoughts that naturally comes up to, and I guess this kind of ties in in a way to how we got into talking about um, the area where we went um, with that specific injury there is the fact that the beginning of a season, um, is that the time that you tend to see more of these type of injuries taking place? Yeah, I mean, Adam, Adam we're, you know, just brought this up and we were discussing some of the different things you see at the beginning of the year. And, and yes, so in the beginning of the year and first kind of session of the season, we end up seeing more of uh, these injuries mm-hmm. because even though pretty much all, all professional athletes are spending the majority of the year uh, conditioning and strengthening and, and, and trying to participate obviously in practice and game type activities, but it's, you know, it's, it's hard to simulate true competition that you see once the season actually starts or once the games actually begin. So, when you're when your body's in full go competition mode, that that's when sometimes when you first transition into that that type of activities, those types of activities, you start to see some of those strains and sprains. And again, those are more of thankfully the minor injuries um, where you get those muscle pulls and those muscle strains. But at the same time, you know you still have to be so be careful because when those muscles are are pulled or if they're not functioning as well as they should, that could make you more vulnerable for a bigger injury. Um, so yes, so in the beginning we do see more of those kind of minor, if you want to call it injuries, but nonetheless can can cost game time and can uh, you know delay delay some of the seasons really ramping up the way some of the players want it to. This whole idea of trying to get players back to action mm-hmm. as, as quickly as possible. I mean, obviously we understand the importance of that and from a fan standpoint they want the players back as quickly as possible but the reality is you know you're also dealing with somebody's life sure right? and you don't want to create a situation i'm assuming where because you rushed the person back that they can be susceptible to re-injuring or perhaps creating a worse situation oh 100% i mean and the the biggest you know Intensity example of that is is the is the NFL where you know every single week obviously you know you have these these injuries that potentially happen on Sunday and then that Monday morning kind of uh, meeting in the in the locker room where us as as the docs of the team and the and the players who are hurt and the trainers and the coaches and everyone's trying to figure out okay you know who who's okay for next weekend or who do we mm-hmm. have to worry about that we potentially have to switch up the some of the positions so. Um, it's that fine line of you know it's a it's a finite amount of games you have in that season and every every game matters you know so it's one of those things that okay how can I get someone to safely return to the game so you have that you you have all the discussion with everyone you know obviously first and foremost your priority is to your patient your player right so your individual you're you know you're you're discussing that injury and and that kind of long term potential implications with with him so your player and patient number one. 
Number two is the the family members are always are usually always involved. So we have you know the the um, the discussions that we used to have with the players was usually essentially like a conference room. You know, it was it was our it was our player, it was the mom, it was the trainer, it was the coach, sometimes the agents. I mean, it was it, basically it's a whole crew. Um, as far as making this shared decision-making uh, model, as far as, okay, you know, what's going on today? How do we treat it? How do we recover from it? And what's a realistic timeline to be able to get back to doing what we need to do? Um, and the most important thing is you don't want to put them in any risk of doing further further injury. So priority number one is trying to identify, okay, what type of injury is this? Is it just a strain? Is it just a sprain? Is it a minor pull that once we just ice it and rehab it for a couple of days, we're going to be fine by next weekend, that kind of thing. So the priority, number one, is just figuring out the severity of that injury. And then number two is, okay, could you go either way? If it's not going to potentially cause them more damage, do you think you're most likely going to play next weekend? But as long as you're feeling okay, you know, you start ramping up practice activities and things like that. Or do you potentially, in, in some, you'll see this in some of the players, uh, some of the more veteran players that have, you know, potentially had an injury, they'll basically sit out of practice all week because they should be good by Sunday and then they can play on Sunday. Um, you know, not that they don't want to practice, but it's just more of, right, give my body as much rest, six days of rest, and then boom, I can, I'll be good for Sunday, that kind of thing. So um, it's, again, being very patient-specific and, and individual-specific to understand, okay, what, what's the best option for that person at that moment? And coaches, the coaching staff, I mean, they get that, that yeah. the need for that. Right? Sure, okay. sure. I mean, listen, I mean, every head coach wants their they, star player right. on the field yesterday. Right. You know, that kind of thing. But um, they understand that uh, especially as much as sports medicine has evolved so much over the last uh, two decades or so. You know, I mean, it was, it was tremendous to see. So nowadays there's much more um, vigilance and, and thought put into the actual you know, sports medicine health of, of these athletes that uh, they understand. It's much more of a conversation than it's ever ever been mm. in that locker room. I think I think I have two comments on this. Yeah. One is just on the, I think, in the era where you have easy access to information and, you know, a very different relationship as a treating physician with mm-hmm. your patients, particularly in the sports model where there are so many vested entities. Mm-hmm. You know, you look at, you know, I was just thinking about this time a year ago, we had Isaiah Thomas. That's right. Who yeah. was playing for the Celtics yep. at that time. Playing with a clearly identified hip injury, completely heroic performances. Arguably, playing injured uh, and needing the recovery, he lowered his trade value. And people talk about that as, you know, mm. his subsequent contract probably cost about $100 million over the course of a contract. And then th- that example actually came in discussions with Kawhi Leonard mm-hmm. with the Spurs mm-hmm. where he doesn't feel ready to go. The coaches feel he's ready to go. He has to get his own team to help figure this out. And obviously family play a factor. Right. Uh, you don't know the whole story behind that. There's not enough transparency. But clearly, you know, he has a sense of his own injury, whether he's good to go or not. And understanding that has that can have a considerable economic impact i mean if that's a hundred million dollar injury for another star player um or a hundred million dollar cost in the contract understanding that okay shortening my professional life has a major economic impact and so i think the players are much more armed with information i think there's much much better ease of information to me it's healthy as a physician because you can have a, 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 a better discussion the more educated and invested someone is in their own 
process, mm-hmm. the more prepared they are for the decisions that you make to, to go through, say, a surgery to help them heal. I, I find it better, but it's, it's an interesting, more complex environment now than ever. That was just right. kind of one thought. That's true. Uh, second one was actually I was thinking about, you know, I, I do just brain spine surgery. I don't deal with the with um, with musculoskeletal system outside of the kind of the axis. I like the way you say just brain and spine. <laughs> That's right. Right, right. That's right. But in terms of uh, application for sports medicine, you know, mm-hmm. it's it, it's interesting because a lot there's spine surgery. We we do deal with surgeries, but not not nearly with the frequency that Arun would as a, a sports orthopedic surgeon. Right. But it was interesting just in in. You know, as I prepared for this today, just looking at, okay, what, what's going on in the sports world and concussions? And I don't think it got a ton of press, but the NFL just came up with their new rules for the year. And what was interesting was just in the past year, there's been a 16% jump in the number of concussions reported in the NFL between, 17, uh, between 16 and 17. 260 concussions uh, in 2016, 291 concussions in 2017. Interestingly, 75% of those concussions happen during the preseason. Why is that? Because you have 80 guys vying for 54 spots. Yep. So everyone is laying their bodies in the line, Mm, number one. Number two, they're not as prepared on their tackling techniques. Mm -hmm. So, you know, they may have been in the weight room. They may have been Mm -hmm. preparing physically, but nothing. They're not as clean with their tackling techniques. And so you have guys laying the line to be able to make that roster spot but you know, there's just been a big jump in concussions, so and I, it, it's interesting because it didn't get as much press. But the NFL is now, you know, they're saying, okay, listen, if you lower your head, we're tripling the fines. So you know, they're trying to send a real message, saying, you know, as a real shift in football. You know, sure. I, I just remember watching, you know, oh, those HBO series on the preseasons with the NFL, and used to love watching certain drills. They're very gladiatorial, you know, uh, mm-hmm. the bull in the ring drill, yep. the uh, Oklahoma drill. You know, I played high school football. It was, they were fun. They were definitely a chance for you to prove yourself as a player, but they clearly are, for most football teams, especially at that level, unnecessary in terms of the level of contact. So more and more we're getting into kind of lesser contact uh, sports. And I think I find that a really interesting context as we talk about different phases of the season and, and exposures to injury. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, tell you what, let's um, go to the phones as well. WFAN's toll-free line, 877-337-6666. It's brought to you by Mohegan Sun. Unlimited possibilities await you at Mohegan Sun. Plan your stay at mohegansun.com. And uh, on the phone, let's go to uh, Rob and Lake Success, who's been waiting for a while. I think he's, I think he's a fan of the two of you. Rob, good oh, morning. I, I, well, I, Bob, I'm a, I'm a fan of yours. Oh, boy, here we go. That was a setup, wasn't it? Okay. <laughs> Thank you. Being, the, uh, being in, the, in the business myself, in, in the field of medicine, uh, I, this is educating. Well, it's, it's always edu- entertaining, and, and, and it reinforces a lot of stuff that I've been doing in my career. Jim, I, I want to just not, you know, I want to touch on a couple things for the people listening. I stand, okay, uh, not, not as a physician today. Number one, our for the, um, you know, for the surgeon, the orthopedic surgeon, uh, talk about cortisol. Everybody's afraid of cortisol, and that's, I think that's an important topic because I've had patients, oh, Doc, I don't want a cortisol shot. They say it, it makes it, it, it weaker, the, the area, and, and, and I don't want to get that. That's one question I want to touch on. I think the ulnar collateral or the Tommy John surgery needs to be 
explained so people understand um, that the severity of this type of an injury, that once you get it, doesn't necessarily mean you're going to come back and be brand new. Okay, that's what, that's what I want you to touch on. As far as the, uh, uh, the, the surgeon, as far as the um, brain surgeon, I'm sorry, I forgot you guys' names. I'd like you to discuss the three different types of uh, injuries, the bulging disc, spinal stenosis, and as far as concussions, when is it safe to come back for the, for the athlete? And I think I touched on a little bit of all over the place here. But I love you guys, and I think this is more for the fans because everybody is always holding this, the final penalties, and cortisol shot is going to be back in three days. I think as a, the fans, they want to understand what this really entails um, for, the, for the athlete that they care about uh, coming back to playing for, for their team. Thank you guys as always, and I'll be listening. Okay, thank you, Rob. All right, uh, let's see. I guess first let's tackle the bulging disc. That was the first Okay, thing so. And this is Adam who's speaking. There's a spectrum of disc injuries. Uh, you know, over time we do lose some of the water content in our disc and we see what's called degeneration. You can see that with just a natural aging process. As the disc degenerates, it starts to bulge. Then there's a weakening of the ring-like structure called the annulus. And sometimes you can see some fracturing of that that causes what's called a disc herniation. Uh, those different things can cause pain in the back. Occasionally can irritate the nerve going to the leg called sciatic nerve, and that's called sciatica. And uh, that, that's kind of that disease process that we see. Uh, very common. 85% of people get some sort of disc pain in their lifetime. Mm -hmm. Generally, 70-80% of the time resolves within uh, several weeks. Spinal stenosis is more of a long-term, what we call degenerative process. Okay, hold that thought yes. because what we're going to do is take pause. I want to come back, talk about that, also talk about the whole idea of coming back from concussions because Rob provided us with a great direction as to where to go yeah. with things too we'll also work on getting some more calls in from folks listening to us radio.com cmb you gotta love that and mike francesa is back in the afternoons it's busy times here on the fan Good morning, everybody. This is Bob Solter. We are in discussion with our guests from IGEA Brain and Spine. The uh, neurosurgeon, uh, Dr. Adam Lipson, was talking with us uh, before we paused for our sports update. Dr. Arun Rajaram, who is an orthopedic surgeon, is also in studio with us. Um, we'll work in some of your calls as well, 877-337-6666. Adam, before we paused, you were uh, answering a call from... Uh, Rob from Lake Success, he brought up a couple of different points. The second point he brought up with spinal stenosis, I wanted to give you time to be able to address that. Absolutely. So spinal stenosis, you know, we talked about bulging discs. Spinal mm -hmm. stenosis essentially is a more of an age-associated condition. It's usually arthritis in the spine. As the joints uh, wear down, they tend to grow a little bit, and as they grow, they can eventually pinch the nerves that exit from the spinal canal towards the legs, and that can cause uh, pain down the legs and something called claudication, where you w try to walk distances and you find that uh, you're getting pain radiating to your buttocks or down your legs. And 
that that's an age associated condition typically uh you know many ways to treat that as well what do you do with, with something like that I mean. usually i'll try one or two epidural steroid injections mm. with cortisol and if that's not effective uh well i'll start with physical therapy try mm -hmm. to strengthen the core mm -hmm. try to get the pressure off the uh off the facet joints and disc and try have that patient try to open up their own canal. If we're unsuccessful, then we give them uh, a, a steroid injection. If we're unsuccessful, then we talk about strategies to surgically decompress the nerve. And there's a variety of different ways that we do that. Uh, finally, I was asked to talk about concussion and return to play. Generally, you know, the most important thing after concussion is having an early threshold to detect it. So any alteration in consciousness, even if someone's just feeling a little stunned but coming back to normal, they qualify as concussion. So you have to have a really heightened um, awareness of what might construe a concussion. And then usually for return to play, we have to go through a series of tests. You want to make sure someone really has no residual symptoms, so uh, that they don't have any more headaches, that they're, that they're cognitively performing well. And these days, we will do some cognitive tests as well. Um, at the school level, it's usually just a, a survey called impact testing. Interestingly, you know, we've hired a neuropsychologist starting in August who, who does a lot of this type of testing for schools and for college programs. So it's, it's you know, that will be a bigger part of our practice in terms of uh, concussion protocols. But once they've cleared and someone looks like cognitively they're feeling well, you know, they're, they're performing well, they feel well, then they're good to return to play and that they're cleared for that. So that's being done actually for high schools and colleges? Is that it's being done for mm -hmm. uh, the entire spectrum of school sports earlier in high school as well. Hmm. Very interesting. 877-337-6666 is our phone number here at The Fan. Back to the phones we go. Let's go over to uh, Lefty in Bayonne, New Jersey. Lefty, good morning. Welcome to The Fan. Thanks for holding on so long. Uh, good morning, Bob. Good morning. You're hitting all my triggers today. I have... Um... <laughs> Yeah, I have an artificial disc at L4, L5. I have a fusion at L5, S1. I have cervical stenosis in my, um, my and uh, it affects my right arm with numbness and pain, horrible, debilitating pain. And I used to take OxyContin or Oxycodone. Now I use medical cannabis and I go to a physical therapy. And, and it's a, a Western therapy, I'm sorry, Eastern therapy, where it's um, Asian uh, acupuncture, cupping, massage, all that good stuff. It's great. And the only reason I went there is by accident because they had wheelchair access. The only place in Bayonne that had wheelchair access, so I wound up going there. Hmm. But, yeah, so this is a great discussion. I really appreciate your discussion here today. But my question is about helmets and uh, concussions. I watch a lot of rugby games, and these rugby players seem to lead with their arms, not like Americans where they lead with their heads. And I'm wondering if, if there's any studies showing that uh, rugby players have less concussions than American NFL players. Is there any correlation or any discussion about that? Uh, this is Adam Lipson, the neurosurgeon. I think several factors. You know, we see a lot of patients from Bayonne, and interestingly, I do a lot of disc replacements. I'm a big fan of the Eastern medicine techniques as well. And so, you know, I would say I'm, I'm, I tend to, as I've gone through my career, I really am not the biggest fan of chronic medication. I think there's a lot of side effects that aren't always discussed. You know, it, it is an interesting era as, as we see a culture that gets more and more away from chronic opioid use, and we see a culture that, you know, there's a lot of legislation in the states that are much more uh, tolerant now for uh, cannabis and cannabinoid 
uh, treatments. And, you know, interestingly, you see in Canada and Australia a lot more leadership in looking at these medications, really as a medical class as opposed to recreational purpose. And I think that there's going to be some really interesting data on all that. But, I, you know, it sounds like you've gone through that entire process. The only thing I would tell you is from a medical perspective, if you have a lot of neck and arm pain, uh, actually cervical surgery typically has a better outcome than lumbar surgery and maybe something worth worth taking a look at. We see a lot of patients from Bayonne, so we're happy to take a look at you if you ever want. Um, at, back to your question. Uh, again, question. Rugby versus Rugby NFL. versus football, yeah. yeah. There actually is a fair amount of data looking at that. Um, the There is a much higher concussion rate in the NFL, and, and there's a lot of discussion about the risks versus the benefit of some of the protective equipment that we utilize. The helmets are protective. There was a lot higher death rate from football, uh, from severe brain injuries prior to helmet usage. Uh, But what we've seen is now you have a lot of high-velocity impacts using the helmet as a weapon as opposed to protection which is why you're seeing all these rule changes. But we do see a much higher rate of concussion in the NFL. The concussion rate in rugby is still there. It's, it's not nearly as bad as the NFL because of the tackling techniques. You know, it's interesting. Uh, I was talking with an individual who played professional rugby in England, and he moved to Los Angeles because he loves the beach. And he talked about playing in the local rugby leagues. And he said, you know, it's all these ex-college football players. And having grown up with this sport, I'm scared to death playing out here. I'm more scared of these guys than I was of the professional guys who wanted to tear my head off. Because (laughs) he said the tackling technique is just not the same of what you're used to. You know, is that you, you know, it's, I think we under, I think we spend so much time on these players as physical specimens and don't understand it's a real craft and learn how to tackle safely and appropriately. And so yes, you're, you, I think you actually make a great point. It's a lower, it's a lower, uh, it is a lower concussion rate because of tackling technique. It's not um, negligible. They still do get concussions, uh, but you know I think that it is the nature of the sport. It's the nature of I think the developing bodies and speeds and training that we develop that we see, and we it has to have an ongoing uh, discussion. At least you know now. You know, you can see statistics on concussion. I think there's a lot more transparency. You know, the NFL has been way better than it was even a couple of years ago about this issue. You know, I think interestingly, I think the NFL is, I think the court just approved um, the NFL settlement for the concussion uh, settlements with the NFL players. I think I think they're mm. going for a billion-dollar settlement with, uh, with the NFL Players Association for previous concussion-related incidents. Mm. Oh, I think yeah. I saw that in the news recently, right. so. Hope that answers your question. Yeah, thank you. I don't think they're getting rid of helmets anytime soon, but uh, thanks. <laughs> Lefty, thank you for your patience, and thank you for your call and your kind words this morning. Okay, thank you. Have a good day. Um, interesting uh, discussion. 877-337-6666 is our phone number here at the fan. Um, one of the things we had thought about and talked about heading into our discussion today, too, outside of talking about um, Jacob DeGrom, was to talk about Kevin Pawecki. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, that um, injury, first of all, can you describe the injury uh, for us? Sure. And 
And the other thing, before our friend Rob, before our last break, had asked about, you know, cortisone shots versus not cortisone, other treatments like that. I I forgot we didn't get a chance to mention that. So, Rob, if you're still listening, um, it's an anti-inflammatory injection. So people who are, okay, interested, do I ever consider getting a cortisone shot? And short answer is yes. You know, one cortisone shot, which is basically a very um, potent anti-inflammatory, is fine. You know, this is not something you're doing every day nor every month or anything like that. But, you know, uh, you don't – there's – yes, there are other options now. Like, for example, I do a lot of platelet-rich plasma treatments where you draw your own blood and you're able to inject those platelets back to your injured site to help heal. So, yes, there are more options today than there were in the past, but I still certainly utilize cortisone in my practice because at the end of the day, it's a it's a very potent anti-inflammatory, and a lot of the times you're – your pain and your symptoms are, are from inflammation and it can help knock it out. So there are, yes, there are more treatments today, but we still use that in our practice. So now going back to, you know, Kevin Pawlecki's injury that we saw, spoke about on, on air with Joe and Evan last month when it first happened, mm-hmm. it was an interesting discussion because, and this goes back to the imaging tests of um, his hand, his x-rays were clean. There was His x-rays were fine. So just for a quick uh, backstory, he he got hit by a pitch, so the ball hit him uh, hit him in the hand, and got X-rays uh, in the in the locker room, and there were no fractures, so his X-rays were fine. Now, most of the time, you don't necessarily need to jump and get an MRI. You assume in that case it's a bad bruise, um, and I gave the example of that that same week actually before his injury, I had a, a college softball player. Um, she got hit by a pitch in a game also, and her and her dad, uh, you know, called me right after the game, and, you know, they got pictures, sent me pictures of the x-rays, and same thing. There was nothing broken, um, but you you watch them closely, and then as they start to feel better, then you can start talking about returning back to play. Mm-hmm. So not, I would say the majority of people who get hit by a pitch in the hand, and if their x-rays are fine, they're not necessarily going to go get an MRI. That's a different, you know, different discussion, but... In the pros, it's a little different, obviously, as far as you're trying to time when somebody can go go back, and that gives you a little more, certainly gives you more information in that regard. So, so they got an MRI of his hand the next day, which showed a basically, you know, tiny hairline crack in one of the metacarpal bones of your hand. So, uh, and I talked about this on air was that a hairline. A hairline crack, you know, is just a really bad bone bruise, mm-hmm. um, where you know if you took your if you took a, a twig, you know, from a that fell off a tree, and if you take that twig and and you try to bend it to snap it, you know, it 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 won't it won't snap until the last until that last moment. So there's a little bit of uh, pliability is not the best word, but there is a little bit of um, biologic give that even a bone can take before it snaps. So that's kind of what happened. Basically, there's a tiny little crack in his metacarpal but it didn't actually snap, and that changes your your ultimate return. So then you treat it like a really bad bone bruise, which, like, if you bump your elbow as you run through a, you know, burn by a door, you're going to get a black and blue mark on your elbow, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. You'll get that same thing on the inside. So the bone bleeds on the inside, and then you'll see that appearance on an MRI as basically, you know, almost like a sunburst kind of um, picture where you'll have a bright-looking um, appearance to the bone, where that's blood. So it's basically your bone is bleeding on the inside, and that's why it hurts from that inflammation and pressure of that blood being there in that bone. So those bone bruises usually start to calm down 
and feel better in those first two to three weeks, depending on which bone it is. The lower extremity takes a little longer than the upper extremity since we're not walking on our hands. Um, but bone bruises in the, around the knee, especially, in, for example, in, in football, is very, very common. And usually the return to play is about three weeks for most of those guys mm-hmm. when they start to feel better. So this, in Kevin's situation, basically hairline crack, really bad bone bruise in the hand, and that can be obviously difficult for a baseball player if you need to if you need to bat if you need to throw. Obviously, in his case, he's a catcher, so he's got to do even more um, from being from that standpoint. So you need to have that same pain-free range of motion, and even though that bone didn't snap, it still can take around four weeks to actually get back to closer to being normal again because bones take six weeks to heal. The hand heals really fast, but when you break a bone, it takes about six weeks for that bone to heal. The hand, uh, even though it heals faster, still can take around that four to six-week mark. So right now, in fact, I just saw an article about this uh, you know, the other day. He's about four weeks out now, um, but he's still having some discomfort when he's trying to grip. So in that in the scenario when obviously you got to grip a bat mm-hmm. right that you need a good amount of force and and the um, the amazing part of our hands is and this is the neuro neuro connection you know Adam can attest to this our brain has some of the greatest number of dedicated sites to our hands so our hands actually have some of the greatest innervation or the some of the greatest function provided to them from our brain because of the intricate work that our hands need to do. If you just think about the fine finger movements, about the sensation, you know, temperature control, vibration control, um, light, dark, things like that. So there's so many um, different things that our hands do that it's it requires a lot, and that's when you start to notice these injuries start to give you symptoms that you may wouldn't otherwise think about. So in his case, he's still having some soreness when he's gripping, so that's why they're still, you know, being a little cautious. They're not letting him go back uh, yet because they want him to again have that pain-free range of motion before he starts going full go. So little things, even though the thing doesn't snap, it can still take four to six weeks to start to feel better because that bone bleeds on the inside and gets a tiny little hairline crack in there. And I wanted to touch on this earlier because you use this term "pain-free re- range of motion," mm-hmm. and as you said that, I'm thinking to myself. Pain-free, but it, you know, a lot of people probably will. Ah, but you know, I can deal with the the little bit of pain that I right. have. You know, that's not what we're talking about here. Correct, because you have to think about what you're asking your body to do right. in the setting of professional sports, right? I mean, they're they're functioning at the highest level of human performance. So, a little bit of soreness from a heavy chest workout is a, is different than all of a sudden you sprained your elbow and then now you need to, you know pitch a, a ball at 100 miles an hour, that kind of thing. So uh, it's that that subtle uh, limitation that you're going to have from an injury can greatly alter ability to do what you're trying to achieve and potentially protect that, protect your body, protect your joint. So that's where they don't, these guys don't have, they shouldn't have pain on a normal basis, you know, mm-hmm. for to be able, if they if they do, they've, they've got some soreness here and there, but most of them are able to do what they need to do without pain. So the moment you introduce pain, it alters their ability to do what they need to do and potentially makes them vulnerable for further injury. we got a lot more to get to. Very quickly, website for IGEA Brain and Spine? www.igeaneuro.com. I always have to get the 800 number, but the New Jersey number is 908-688-8800. Okay, Dr. Adam Lipson and Dr. Arun Rajaram in studio with us on our program on the fan. 
More as we continue after Dave's top of the hour update. Who's along with the Sports Edge program after our 8 o'clock update? Ed Randall's Talking Baseball follows our 9 o'clock update on the fan this Sunday morning. And good morning, everybody. This is Bob Salter, hour two of our program with our guests from IGEA Brain and Spine, Dr. Adam Lipson, who is a neurosurgeon, and Dr. Arun Rajaram, who is an orthopedic surgeon. They're both in studio with us. What I said we would do as well is to try to work in some thoughts from some of the folks listening to us. WFAN's toll-free line, 877-337-6666. It's brought to you by Mohegan Sun. Unlimited possibilities await you at Mohegan Sun. Plan your stay at mohegansun.com. Back to the phone we go, and let's go to Mike, who's been waiting forever in Rye. Mike, thanks for holding on so long. Welcome to the fan. Hey, how you guys doing today? And good morning. Great show. Thank you. Um, very, uh, very interesting. A lot of great uh, information. Um, I'm a... Um, I'm a pharmacist, but I used to play some, I played uh, high school and college ball, football, lacrosse, and I probably was concussed somewhere between 15 and 20 times throughout that time. Didn't even know it, you know, back in, this is back in the 80s, nobody cared. Uh, So, you know, looking at the, the equipment that, you know, that everyone wears, you know, the equipment's come a long way, lighter, more, more. You know, more maneuverable. Um, but the helmet—it's still this hard shell. You hit someone, it, it, your head rings. That that shell vibrates. Um, and I was wondering if there was, you know, anything coming around with like the soft helmets that, uh, that I've heard about. But I think that would save so much. I think the injuries would go down in the concussions. So this, I, can, I can probably take this, actually. It's it's interesting you say that. So last year I was at uh, American Association of Neurosurgeons special meeting on concussion. They had a number of leaders from the NFL and from the military, which – I think it's fascinating in that way is that those are really become the, the leaders and the movers in this field as far as raising the awareness. Um, in the military, it has to do with the fact there's so much body armor and that a lot of the injuries now are, are IEDs or explosions. And you can save a life. You can protect someone from a life-threatening injury, but they're, they're getting significant blasts despite being helmeted that caused a lot of uh, concussion and other brain trauma. The, the, interestingly, the NFL has actually generated a venture capital fund that looks at new technology to increase the safety, understanding that the concussion issue is a real threat to the future of the sport. Um, 
you know, I have a good colleague at University of Washington actually started a company, a pediatric neurosurgeon, and he started a company actually making new helmets that are actually utilized in the NFL. The, I'll, I'll give a plug for him. It's a startup. It's called Vicus, V-I-C-I-S, looking at novel materials. I mean, it, when you look at the helmet, it's meant to look not dissimilar to an average team helmet, but the reality is there is quite a bit of technology at work here and quite a bit of innovation. You know, some of the other things people are looking at are putting accelerometers and measuring forces in the helmets. So there's a lot of innovation there. You don't always see it on the field, uh, but I know that there is a lot of thought being given. You know, interestingly, some of the stuff I saw for, by the put forward by the NFL was looking at position-specific helmets. So the type of tackle that produces a concussion in a quarterback, for example, is very different you know, where they're frequently getting tackled from their blind side, that's, that's, that's the classic high-risk uh, injury, as opposed to, say, a receiver, a slot receiver going across the middle, as opposed to, say, a lineman where they're getting hits every day, kind of f- f- from a lower distance, mm-hmm. um, not, not the same high-speed type collision. So each of those impacts and tackles are unique and different and so they've looked at position specific helmets to try to address that nothing that's actually come into implementation but they're testing all this they even looked at interestingly changing the field so there is a company actually makes a rubber matting that goes underneath the turf uh, which is quite relevant you know us being in the northeast people play sports on hard grass services where the concussion rates go up in the 80s with astroturf there was a higher concussion rate from that surface. So people actually yeah. starting to pay attention to these issues, looking at what's safer for the player and for the environment. Because the reality is everyone's getting bigger, faster, stronger. You know, as you know, you know what? the 80s athletes is different in speed and strength compared to the 2000 athlete. Sure. You know, but one of the things I remember but that, you know, when I hit in football, you know, that ringing, that, that, you know, you're followed with your head. But, you know, I played lacrosse also, and I hit guys just as hard. But that helmet back then was so much softer, mm-hmm. had a soft, pliable outside, and, you know, never got any pain or any concussions from playing lacrosse. So, you know, that's why I'm talking about it. That's right. why I was thinking, you know, all about the soft helmet that, you know, that, that has some give. Agreed. You know, and, and that becomes the discussion, right? As we talked about, people learning to tackle with their helmets, and clearly the NFL is trying to send a strong message with the new rules, saying you guys got to stop lowering your heads uh, for tackles, right? So, so I think that that is an issue, um, and yet you look at, say, the older eras of football playing when people had soft leather helmets saying, well, why don't we go back to that era? There was actually a significant death rate from tack- from collisions from, from that sport. Uh, so I-, I think this is an ongoing discussion. Clearly, technology is at play, but you're absolutely right. You know, it's, there's, a ba- there's a trade-off. You know, people talk about, interestingly, mixed martial arts, where there's minimal padding and minimal gloves, as opposed to boxing, where there's a lot more padding what has a higher impact on the brain? And there's a lot of discussions among some of the neurologists and neurosurgeons that actually 
boxing with longer rounds and more continued sustained impacts to the brain has a, a, a more significant chronic impact on the brain compared to mixed martial arts where you don't have much padding. There's a much higher knockout rate, but it's three rounds and maybe the, you know, it, it may potentially be that the um, being knocked out may be protective as opposed to having a lot of those frequent mini episodes where your your head's ringing and you're kind of disoriented for a couple seconds, right? So Yeah, I mean, MMA I fights last for three minutes. Right. I don't think we know, and that's the hard part, is this is a relevant conversation. We're trying to figure out to the best of our ability. We weren't having these discussions a decade ago, and now we're just trying to catch up. Well, thanks for uh, all the information, guys. Thank you. Thank you for your call this morning, Mike, and your patience on the phone, too. Let's stay on the phone at 877-337-6666. Let's go next to Vincent in Hoboken. He's been holding a long time as well. Vincent, good morning. Uh, Welcome to the fan. Hi. Good morning, everybody. Good morning. Uh, I have a question. It's not sports-related. My wife has a bulging disc, as as you were talking about before, but secondary to that, she has pain in her legs from uh, lymphedema, which holds her legs as well really, really badly, which I know is not either of your field. But recently she's developed neuropathy in her feet, and she's not a diabetic. Now her podi- we asked the uh, podiatrist if this could be caused from the pressure from the lymphedema, and she had said no. I'd rather, I'm curious on your opinion of that. Come see us in the office. We see these types of issues all the time. You're constantly navigating what, what might be it's a process of trying to figure out, you know, you usually have to examine someone, really be direct with my questions. I may order a test, uh, like an electro, uh, EMG nerve conduction study, but you can have both processes, right? You can have lymphedema and you can have leg pain from a disc that's symptomatic. And, you know, we, we can help tease that out, but give us a call. And I have an e right. number for everyone since I, I always manage to forget this number. So the number is... Uh, 866-721-8123. All right. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you for your call Thank you. this morning. Right. Okay. Oops. Bye-bye. What is this? My my phone is going off with an alarm. What is this? What? It's not but, even break what, time what, yet, Bob. What am I, waking up here at this point? <laughs> <laughs> Daylight savings time is back. <laughs> well, on our program on the fan, we are uh, in a discussion with our guest from IGA Brain and Spine. I thought it was break music. <laughs> That's what it sounded like to me. I did for a second. Yeah. Don't think that was the case myself, too. I tell you, it's just it's been one of those one of those weeks and weekends here. Uh, Dr. Adam Lipson and Dr. Arun Rajarab are talking with us on our program on the fan. Now, you know, there's so many interesting areas that people have um, brought up here. And it gets us into this whole idea of um, how it is that we, I guess, try to keep ourselves in optimal condition, okay? You have a lot of people who fall in that category of being weekend athletes, um, and sometimes they will do things that push themselves. They like to phrase it that way. How do you know when you've perhaps exceeded your limit in pushing yourself? And one of the areas I'm going to ask you about, because we've talked about this before, is this whole idea of stretching, which you advocate before one starts. Mm -hmm. How can you do too much of that? Or can you? Sure. So 
the base, you know, the simple thing to think about is, all right, let your, listen to your body. You know, that's, that's something easier said than done in many ways because we sometimes do get a feeling of, all right, accomplishment. You feel some soreness after a workout and things like that. But, you know, muscle soreness after a great chest workout or a great leg workout is different than if your joint hurts, like your knee hurts or your hip, your hip groin area hurts or your shoulder hurts when you're doing certain exercises. So the biggest thing I tell folks is, you know, it's not always no pain, no gain kind of thing, depending mm-hmm. on what the actual issue is. So that's first and foremost, listen to your body. Um, and then when you're first getting into the sp- springtime and now, you know, we just went from winter to summer basically. So now that we're now that it's summertime, um, it's, it's going to be a transition period, right? So your first couple times out, you, you should kind of ease back in and that, and that starts with the conditioning, right? So if you, if you like the bike or you like the treadmill or you like the elliptical, you know, whatever you're doing, kind of ease back into everything. So, you know, be it 10 minutes the first day, 15, the next 25, the next, and so on. Just, um, there is something to be said about gradually building back up to a sustained level of activity that you were doing a year ago. Um, and even little things like, uh, that my, my, I like to, I like to bike. So my, that's my biggest cardio exercise that I like to do. And, and if I'm at the gym on the stationary bike, even just changing the resistance up one level, you, you notice a difference that first time you up it because you, that's, that's more of a, more of a resistance, more of a workout, right? So those are little things that you can kind of, tweak um with some sort of uh control to say okay hey i was doing this last week i, w- I was able to do 10 minutes without really even getting winded at all and then now i'm up in my resistance next week and now i'm only doing you know seven minutes before i'm starting to get a little winded that kind of thing so you you treat your body like a well-oiled machine but that should be inclusive of you know these warm-up periods just like in any car or motorcycle you know mm-hmm. if you let your engine warm up a little bit you're going to get better performance so it's very, very analogous to that. Um, so, okay, you're gonna ask something with that. Actually, I'm gonna take a we'll take a pause here. It's a real break music this talk time. Back, <laughs> talk, back, talk more about this and some other topics too. Also, work in some thoughts from some of the folks listening to us. We're talking with our guest from IGA Brain Inspired on our program on the fan this Sunday. I love listening to those guys. We have uh, guests who are in studio with us uh, who also uh, appear on uh, that program. Dr. Arum Rajaram, who's been on with Joe and Evan. Yeah, once or twice. And had a a pleasant experience uh, doing that. In fact, they were at um, the Zinberger this Wednesday Five minutes from our Florham Park office. It literally just so happens that, like, if we were there, we would have we could have gone on and done it live and set. It was like five minutes away from where uh, where we are in Jersey. I know exactly where that is. Yeah, back too. I went. I went to school at Seton Hall. So, oh, there you, you go. Know, I, yeah, I, I, yeah, you I know, know our, that. You whole, know our backyard. I know yep. that whole area. Yeah. Believe me. Uh, also in studio with us, Dr. Adam Lipson. Uh, Dr. Lipson is a neurosurgeon. Uh, Dr. Rajaram is an orthopedic surgeon. They have um, shared an awful lot with us thus far in our discussion. We've taken some calls, too, at 877-337-6666. That's our phone number here at The Fan. You want to join in the discussion. Rick Wolf's Sports Edge follows our 8 o'clock update. One of the things that um, we'd sort of kicked around as an idea of um, an 
area to talk about, too, in, in advance of our discussion today was talk a little bit about this situation where um, Didi Gregorius got uh, kicked in the head, um, I guess it was Friday night. Mm -hmm. right, and there was obviously some initial uh, concern as a result of that. But that's, you know, this gets into an interesting area, Adam, because it, it's not typical that you have concussions that you're dealing with in baseball, obviously. It's not like the NFL. No, but, you know, it's amazing how, my, how much these other quote-unquote non-contact sports actually do experience concussions. At the high school level, for example, the most frequent concussions are field hockey and basketball in women, for example. What? Field, field hockey, hockey and, and basketball. basketball. Right. Soccer is also one of the highest concussion rates. And there are a couple of reasons for that. You know, in, in say, a high school female, for example, uh, they don't have the same development of their cervical muscles, uh, the neck muscles, mm -hmm. to be able to support the head. So, you know, there can just be, just from a sudden impact or collision, not even hitting your head, you can still sustain a, a concussion or just, say, a fall or, you know, say, a dive. Um, where you might hit the ground can cause a concussion. So it, I think in all sports there has to be heightened awareness. Obviously the contact sports are higher risk, but the reality is we, we see concussions across the entire spectrum of, of sports activities. I don't know, Rune, if you have any other Yeah, it was interesting you know, you observation and seeing – I'll put it a couple ways. Football has raised our overall awareness of – uh, concussions in many ways because of uh, you know the prevalence of that at the NFL and at that level and and you know college high school and stuff and so on so it's certainly raised our awareness of it um, but it uh, it happens in every sport like Adam was saying in and some of the non-contact sports that you wouldn't even think of off of the top of your head um, but being in the being in the professional worlds you know I'm, I remember you know comparing when I was on the field at a Texans game on the sideline, the intensity of, of watching every moment compared to when we're, you know, we're covering the, with the Astros in that scenario, the, the baseball game, um, it's a, it's a different environment. You're, you're not stressed about that same type of injury and potential uh, um, energy impact that you have to look for. So it is a different, um, totally different dynamic and, and then that way, when an injury like the other night, when Didi got kicked in the head, happens, you you really it takes everyone by surprise because you're not you're not expecting a big hit or a kick in the head uh, all of a sudden when somebody's running or running to second base, you know that kind of thing. So um, it it kind of does bring and in that way, then you actually see a a bigger response because of that because it's an unexpected event in that regard, and that's why you know they they checked him out, they evaluated him, you know they run through some questions obviously to see as far as are they is it he is he having a concussion that kind of thing. So. I think it's good that it's it's created a heightened response in other sports, um, but it is an unexpected moment to kind of happen just like that in baseball because we don't see it as often. Right. I'll tell you what we'll do is we'll deal with some folks on the phones as well, too, because those always go into interesting areas of discussion. 877-337-6666 is our phone number. Let's go to uh, Bobby, who's calling us from the car. Bobby, good morning. Welcome to the fan. Good morning. How is everybody today? We're doing well. Where are you traveling? I'm actually on my way to my car. Left. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> I find I listen to you guys every Sunday morning, and I find it fascinating. And uh, I have a comment uh, for the doctors and a medical question. 
my comment is, uh, first of all, I'd like to thank the doctors for what they provide to all of us weekend so-called warriors. Uh, I'm retired lieutenant FDNY, and I've lived through 9-11 and received uh, some pretty damaging injuries on 9-11. And uh, I'm very active, uh, karate, bowling, golf, you know, typical weekend warrior. But I've always used my sports as my therapy. Uh, and I, I, I just would like to reaffirm to the doctors that what they do for guys like me, whether they know it or they don't know it, I think they do know it, is that they keep us emotionally and physically able to get through uh, our aging process. And what I mean by that is as I'm getting older, my injuries and all uh, job-related and injuries for my sports uh, impacts what I want to do as far as my uh, uh, life, my quality of life. And I found that uh, going to an orthopedic and uh, keeping me physically fit and, and get, keeping me back in the game, even though I can't do the things at the level that I once did when I was younger, I'm still able I, you know, years ago, I would, you know, when I was having my emotional setbacks and some tragedies, I would go out and run five or six miles, ten miles. I don't have that ability any longer. But I find uh, bowling and golf and pickleball and my martial arts, more importantly, uh, are able to keep me in these low-impact sports to... Uh, to help me through my uh, emotional uh, times, which we all have. Everybody does have. So I just want to reaffirm to the doctors that the service you provide for guys like me is just immensely beyond words to describe to you guys. That's the first time. Now, my, my medical question to them is, uh, like I said previously, very, very active, and probably more active than I should be at my age. But I find this is what I want to do, and, you know, I what keeps me motivated and healthy. I've, uh, I've had uh, eight heart procedures and uh, four, four heart surgeries, but I don't let it affect me at all. So that's my little background. Now, I've just had... For the last two years, I've been battling a knee problem, a left knee problem, and it doesn't impinge the things that I want to do athletically, but it does compromise what I need to do, you know, for my competitive nature at my age. And I don't think that just because I'm getting older, I should stop being competitive, you know, and just give in to the injury. So I don't. So uh, I've... I've always taken uh, some kind of anti-inflammatory, and, and that seems to get me through my workouts. But after the workout, uh, I'm having uh, a lot of inflammation, uh, pain, and, you know, I'm limping a lot. So uh, I had a shot in me, a cortisone shot, about a year ago, and that seems to work. And uh, then a couple of months ago, it wore off. And uh, I went back and I got a shot again in the knee, and it worked again. I'm able to do my sports and enjoy, but I do have a, a problem with the knee. Now, we had an x-ray done onto my orthopedic, 
uh, and the X-ray showed no arthritis in the knee. Now, the question I have for you guys is that will an X-ray uh, determine arthritis in the knee? And I also had an MRI because the doctor tends to feel that I might have a slight tear in my meniscus, which all the stuff that I do is probably, you know, what we're leading to. Now, should, at my age, I'm 65, I enjoy what I do. Should I just keep getting the shots in the knees to keep me in the game? Or do you think at my age I should have the, with the, if I do have the, uh, uh, tail in the meniscus, like, uh, at my age, you think it'll be more beneficial to get it fixed that way? Uh, my question is, So, Bobby, so first of all, you know, thanks for your service as a firefighter to our city and keeping everyone safe for, uh, you know, all these decades. So thank you, first and foremost, for that. Um, and then two things. First, about your about your comments about medicine and kind of what we do, that that means the world because you're you're the you're the exact reason why we do what we do. And, uh, you know, it's your what you said was actually ironic because we had a discussion on Friday with some folks about an about an interview. And some of the questions they asked us were, were along those lines of why we why we chose to go into medicine in our specific fields. And, um, you know, me personally, why I went into orthopedics and sports medicine orthopedics is, is exactly people like you to be able to, you know, get people like you back in the game and back to doing all the activities and uh, and things that you enjoy doing. And then during your career also, being able to enable you to safely do your job as a firefighter and, you know, colleagues that are police officers and, and everyone able to get back uh, into all the activities that they love to do on a day-to-day basis for enjoyment as well as what they need to and want to do for work. So, uh, you know, again, thanks for what, everything you said, and you're the reason why we kind of went into this field. So to answer – oh, my pleasure. And then to answer your question about your knee – you know, it's it's interesting. So you're you're obviously in great shape. You know, you've always been in great shape. You're 65 years old, and you and according to what you said with your X-ray, you have no arthritis. So that's phenomenal. Um, a lot of people your age cannot say that. So the fact that you had an X-ray and really has no or minimal arthritis is is great. So regardless of that, you have to tailor everything to what your desires and activities are, and. Assuming you have a he- overall healthy knee, which is what it sounds like with the X-rays being okay then the next step would be, yes, an MRI. And then it's it's something that can be subtle in the sense of nowadays MRIs have gotten so good that you'll see all kinds of stuff. I always tell my patients it's like an analogy of a car tire. If you look at your car tires and if you've been driving it, you know, for the last 10,000 miles since you got those new tires, you're going to see some wear in that rubber. It doesn't mean that tire doesn't work. It doesn't mean you need to replace that tire. It doesn't mean you need to repair that tire. But you're going to see some changes, and that's the same exact thing with MRIs nowadays, that you're going to see some changes no matter what. So it would be something that I would, uh, you know, I'd want to examine you to see exactly what the symptoms are and see if that correlates with the MRI. And regarding the injections, like we talked about earlier, a cortisone shot is not a bad thing, but it's not something that I would keep doing um, depending on the frequency and that's where a lot of the other treatments that you want to consider, for example, like I said, I, I do a lot of platelet-rich plasma treatments where we draw your own blood and inject your platelets back into your knee, um, and that's the best anti-inflammatory you could ever ask for because um, it's your own platelets, and that's what those cells do. 
um, you know, that it's your own, it's your own platelet. So it's, you're not, it's not damaging to your body, but if you keep doing too many cortisone shots, um, with a lot of frequency that, uh, can weaken some of the areas. So, um, I wouldn't keep doing the cortisone shots. And then finally, to answer your, your question about the, uh, procedure for a meniscus tear, if that's indeed what you have, um, it, for the right type of tear and the right type of symptoms, it can still be very beneficial. Um, age doesn't age doesn't matter as much. It's more of the types of the symptoms and the type of the tear that we can treat with those with that treatment. That's right. wonderful. Yeah, that's my question. I kind of thought that uh, if I do have, I did have the MRI, uh, and I should get the results on on Tuesday of the MRI. And I was kind of leaning that if I do have the tear in the meniscus. Light tear in it. Uh, my, like I said, my question is: it more beneficial for me to have surgery as opposed to just uh, putting a band aid on it with the with the shots? Depends. I'd have, to, I'd have to see. I'd have to see your knee and see your MRI to give you the best decision. But you can certainly consider both options based on what's going on. All right, Bobby, we got to run here. Thank you very much for your call, your kind words as well, and your patience on the phone too. Eight seven seven three three seven sixty six sixty six is our phone number here at the Fan. You want to. Radio.com. It's Sunday morning on the fan. Good morning, everybody. This is Bob Solter. We're in a discussion with our guests from IGEA Brain and Spine. Doctors Adam Lipson and Arun Rajaram are in studio with us. Our monthly discussion, we've covered a lot of different areas. You know, one of the issues that was brought up by our first caller, uh, Rob from Lake Success, that um, we've touched upon this before, but he actually mentioned um, in talking about Tommy John surgery. And he said, if I remember correctly, that he was asking to talk about exactly what that involves and the potential for complications uh, from that. We've touched upon this before, but let's tackle this again because uh, uh, this time of the year, and we talked about this. You know, I've talked about this. We've talked about this with Adam. Um, this becomes a hot topic. Sure. Yeah, and it's it's such a common question and discussion point about the Tommy John ligament, the Tommy John surgery mm-hmm. in baseball. And um, so again, going back to the basics. Okay, what is it? So the, the ligament that we're talking about is called the ulnar collateral ligament on the inside of your elbow. So it basically provides stability to the elbow. So it's the strongest ligament in our elbow that when your, elbow, when your arm is in that throwing motion and reaching behind you to kind of bring your arm forward again to, to gain velocity for that ball, there's a ton of torque that goes through that joint. And if you didn't have that ligament, the elbow joint which is a hinge basically would be wobbling it would be unstable and it would basically be like almost like a a piece of linguine if you just took that linguine and basically started waving it in the air it would it would kind of be like that so you need that (laughs) ligament to provide that stability to that joint so it's actually a very common injury across sports and the only sport that gets the most uh kind of press and discussion is baseball in regards to surgery for that ligament because the pitchers absolutely need it. So when a football player, which this hap- this happens not infrequently, when a football player injures that ligament, 
or for example, if they dislocate their elbow and then we put the elbow back in place, that ligament tears, but it'll scar in and it'll basically get back to a, a scenario where the football player can still do what they need to do. Sometimes they'll wear a brace and this and the other to give them a little extra support in the beginning, but they don't end up with surgery. So the, the majority of football players, basketball players, um, soccer players, and then non-pitching baseball players, when they injure that ligament, are not having the surgery. So you can have that exact injury in an outfielder, in a second baseman. They're not even going to have that surgery. It's the pitcher that's most vulnerable for, number one, the injury, and number two, potentially requiring surgery to treat it because of doing what they do. Now, that's a combination, again, of the torque that the arm is, is put under when you're pitching, and then the reps, the number of times they're doing that exact motion. So if that ligament isn't normal, then they're not going to have that stability to the elbow, and they're not going to be able to generate the control and velocity of that ball. So then, okay, in a pitcher, this tears, so now they can't pitch anymore to do what they need to do. If you're considering surgery, then what do you do? So you you can't just... There is some new technology, which is going back to actually the the meeting in D.C., the, the Cherry Blossoms meeting that we talked about, the elbow... Um, there are some newer technologies now where you're looking at potential ways of repairing the ligament and augmenting it with some new technology types of tissue, um, biologics, and some new suture material that's, that's not absorbable and stronger so that you hope that the ligament can grow on top of that suture where these sutures are, are laced with biologic material that your body then grows collagen on top of. So there are certainly new technologies in, in the horizons that we're hoping that maybe we can try to repair some of these that previously were not repairable because as of today, 2018, Tommy John surgery means we're building you a new one. Your ligament itself is not going to work anymore. So then we have to build you a new one. So we go into the wrist and we take an extra tendon in the wrist, basically prepare that to have the similar length and, and uh, size to what your original ligament was, and then we're putting it back, connecting your forearm to your upper arm, which then stabilizes your elbow joint. So when people say, when people hear of, okay, what, Tommy John surgery, that means you're actually building someone a new ligament. You can't just repair it the way you could other things in the body. Um, similar to when someone has an ACL surgery in their knee, you can't repair that either. You're building that person a new one. So we have to actually give them a new ligament or a new tendon to put in there and that's the same principle in the elbow for Tommy John. Now, it's such a tough recovery because you need several things to happen. First, you need that new tendon that we just put in there to incorporate, which in the beginning takes a minimum of three months just for that to heal and get better blood supply and everything like that. Mm -hmm. So the first three months, you, you really can't do too much at all with that arm. You just got to let that thing heal. Then you got to start working on improving your motion. Then all that muscle atrophy that, that set in over that three-month period of not doing much, you have to build those muscles back. So then there's scar tissue that builds. So that's exactly what we talked about earlier this morning with Jacob deGrom's uh, elbow. Uh, a year after his Tommy John, he developed scar tissue around that ulnar nerve, which he had then had a second surgery to remove some of that scar tissue and move the nerve. So th unfortunately, a lot of folks who have the surgery – don't always make it back to 100% because it's a, such a big deal and the stress that you put on your elbow to pitch um, is incredible. So it is, um, even though it's such a commonly seen injury and commonly described surgery in this day and age, it's, um, not an, it's not 
an automatic that you're going to be back to 100% because of uh, the it's a big deal, a big, big injury. At the heart of things is this idea that this is not a natural motion, okay, that you're putting your arm under when you're pitching like that. Sure. And then the whole idea of this being repetitively Correct. done. Right. I think, Bob, that's what does it because a lot of things we do are not, quote-unquote, natural right. motions, right? right? It's just the frequency in which you're doing it. Because we'll see folks who they work at a desk all day, and they're having the same rotator cuff tendonitis as some of my athletes are having because they're putting their arms in an awkward position on their keyboard, on their phones, on their at their desk. So they're coming in with the exact same rotator cuff tendonitis symptoms because they're putting their arms in an awkward position at their keyboard or at their desk. So a lot of things we do are not in a quote-unquote normal position, but it's the frequency and, and repetitive nature of those motions that can cause the symptoms to arise and the issues to arise. Why don't we see more or hear more about this injury when it occurs in sports other than baseball? Because most of them don't, number one, most of them don't ever need surgery. Number two, it doesn't impact that player's ability to do what they need to do other than the pitcher in baseball. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, J.J. Watts, for a perfect example, you know, he one of my favorite players, and, you know, when I was with the Texans, I, you know, talk to him about these kind of things you know he he wears that that brace for that added kind of uh strength and confidence in the arm for that extra little bit of extra protection but you see him working out in the weight room and you see him doing the things that he does that elbow is in phenomenal shape but he dislocated that elbow that elbow popped out of place years ago Mm -hmm. that ulnar collateral ligament tears and it scars back in and and he's he's able to do everything at such a high level um and that that's that's the case in almost every other sport and position other than the baseball pitcher because they're the only athlete that is constantly putting that torque of the elbow when you're getting into that throwing motion over and over and over again. And we, we just, in in kinematics of, of pitching, you break it down into stages, and it's that basically kind of late cocking stage or early acceleration phase where your arm is starting to come forward mm-hmm. where you get the most torque in that elbow. And that's where that ligament is on maximum, maximum stress where you can get these injuries. And that's why we we worry about it in baseball pitchers more than any other position or sport in the world. Interesting. Mm-hmm. After our 8 o'clock update, Rick Wolf is along with the Sports Edge program here on the fan. And after our 9 o'clock update, Rick uh, after our 8 o'clock update, Rick Wolf has the Sports Edge program. After our 9 o'clock update, Ed Randall is by talking baseball here on the fan. 877-337-6666 is our phone number. Let's go back to the phones uh, to Steve in Manhattan. Steve, good morning. Welcome to the fan. All right. Fabulous show this morning, gentlemen. And I heard Rob from Lake Fire and Lake Success, his name mentioned so many times. I thought he was part of the show. I didn't hear his call. <laughs> um, us too. Us too. He's still listening. And, and the irony, Rob now has his own show. The call has become host now. But listen, guys, that's a fabulous <laughs> statement you just made because Exhibit A are quarterbacks who do throw the football in cold weather, but they don't come up with the Tommy John because they don't throw as much as, as uh, pitches do. And... Um, rehabbing Tommy John, we know we're rebuilding that elbow, but the re- when they rehab it, I really believe that these guys don't go into a conditioning and a rehab program where they're working out to fix that elbow like they've ever done before in their life. That has to be a factor in strengthening out the arm. And I think what's left out, too, is the forearm muscles because the forearms really control the grip and everything. If you really have powerful, strong forearms, 
And that whole section of your arm, which is very complex, from the tip of your finger all the way up to your shoulder, if they're worked out properly and strengthened properly, I think you have a better chance of not getting it or recovering from it. Sure. I mean, your comment about the forearm, um, thanks for your call, Steve. The forearm muscles, you're absolutely right. They're so important to the stability of your elbow because all those muscles start just above the elbow joint on our humerus, on our on our upper arm bone. So all those muscles cross the elbow joint and provide stability. So you're absolutely right. The stronger you get your forearm muscles, the added stability you can achieve for your elbow. So that's that's true. Um, the the rehab after the surgery, you know, we talk about that. It does it it does uh, get a little more uh, complicated in the sense of you can't do too much too early. It's a very patient rehabilitation, you know, uh, for lack of a better word. You got to try to take it very slowly, but. As far as the preventative things go, you know, people are trying to look at these things. What's the most effective preventative strategy? And, yes, you know, muscle building and, and watching your uh, endurance and things like that around the elbow is important. Um, but the one common issue that's still being uh, seen is just the reps. You know, that at the end of the day, um, these pitchers and, and kids are pitching at a very high level from a very young age and the, it's just your elbow has a clock. You know, your elbow, essentially, after so many pitches, it can potentially fatigue. And uh, over the course of your life, some of those ligaments can uh, fatigue, and that may put you at risk of these injuries. Quick question, Rune. Yep. Which, which pitch has the most stress on the ligament of the, of the spectrum of pitches that are done? Sure. You know, you know it's gr- that's a great question. The, the one difference between now the thought process on that is so a lot of times people have spoken about sliders and and uh, arms, excuse me, pitches that require your arms to get additional torque, cause more issues on the elbow. But then at the same time, now there's been a lot of discussion about the fastball where guys are throwing so hard to achieve such a high velocity time after time after time that it's that accumulation of those type of throws that um, also can... Uh, cause the same injury. So it's it, it's kind of shifted that, yes, it's not necessarily the fastball puts the most torque on the elbow, but the amount of force that they put into it, mm. so many um, multiple pitches after another is causing is causing issues now. And then the developing athlete, because I know there are some, I remembered in high school some of the pitchers were not allowed to throw too many change-ups or curveballs or sliders, for mm-hmm. example. Is, mm-hmm. Are there still restrictions on that for the developing athlete? You know, I think a lot of level. there there's still a discussion about that, and I think a lot of that has shifted to now the pitch count discussion. As mm-hmm. far as okay, listen, you, yes, I'm I'm concerned about the types of balls you're throwing, but I'm more concerned about how many balls you're throwing. So I think a lot of that has shifted towards okay, what's the best pitch count? Which we don't. That's not even a perfect science either, which is still to be determined. Okay, what's the right number that's safe? Steve, thank you for your call and your comments this morning. Your patience on the phone as well. You got it, guys. Thank you. Have a good day. Interesting uh, discussion. You know, the callers take us in so many different areas um, as well. When we're looking at um, this area of uh, sports medicine and looking to the future, where we're going, what's on the horizon? Biologics is always a very common thing in the stem cell world and and trying to utilize your body's natural potential to heal you're trying to utilize and maximize that ability so that's for example that example i just told you about the tommy john repair principle where we have these new technologies types of sutures that are 
essentially coated with a collagen substance that your body can actually incorporate and grow into is amazing. So you're, again, you're trying to use biologic um, type material and treatments to help uh, optimize healing environments. So I think that that certainly is going to be the next frontier. You know, we have many things already at our uh, at our disposal on a daily basis. You know, we do a lot of platelet-rich plasma treatments in our office. You know, we have our centrifuge set up there where patients walk in. You know, we draw their blood. We How spit. long does it take? So great question. So you know, like just like you're going to draw blood when you go to get your cholesterol checked mm-hmm. or, or your electrolytes checked or whatever. You know, we draw the blood, which you know takes uh, takes you know, less than a minute just to draw that blood, and then that little syringe sits in a centrifuge that spins for five minutes at 1500 RPMs, and then it separates the blood and the plasma. So your blood is heavier, so the red blood cells sinks to the bottom in that syringe, and your plasma and your platelets and all the other um, cytokines and factors that we're utilizing go to the top in a thin kind of yellow substance, which is basically the plasma layer with the platelets. Then you isolate that, and then inject that back to either the knee, the hip, the elbow, wherever, the shoulder, wherever the problem is. So the whole process, you know, in and of itself from that, the moment you draw the, draw the blood to then spinning for five minutes, then injecting is just a matter of, matter of minutes. You know, it's not a, a, not a long drawn out process anymore. It's become much more uh, mainstream and easy to do in the office setting. So that's something we're doing, you know, today, uh, you know, almost almost every day in our office, which which people don't realize that that's um, that's very easy to do nowadays. You know, the NFL, that same centrifuge was sitting in the in the locker room and in the stadium for over a decade. So that that technology is not new. It's been around for a long time. Um, so people think that it's only in that world. But we have it in now we have it in our office, too. So, you know, those are all things that, you know, everyone can have access to, which is why being in a in a center and being with a group that has the the kind of full picture and ability to take care of people from head to toe is great. So we have, we get a lot of people who are coming to see us for that um, and happy to talk about it all. You know, whenever people have questions. Okay, perfect time to mention website and that phone number. All right, so it's Igea Brain Spine uh, or Igea Medical, soon to be. Uh, phone number is 866-721-8123. We have uh, six offices in New Jersey, an office in Manhattan. Our website is www.igeaneuro.com. Gentlemen, thank you both very much, and thank you to our callers as well. Very interesting discussion this morning. Thank you, Bob. Thanks, Bob. Thanks for having us. Have a great weekend, everybody. We will see you next month. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.